All right, so we are continuing our series through the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to look at chapters 6 and 7 this morning. Uh, we've got four points on the outline. Uh, you'll see the points on the screen. There's a paper outline out in the, in the lobby. If you want to run back and grab one, that's fine. Um, or you can follow along just on the screen. So just to give you a heads up, the first point is the longest one um, by far. So if you kind of gauged it like, wow, we're going to be here to one, um, probably not. So probably not. Okay, so yeah, if you're not there, go ahead and turn back to Nehemiah 6, because that's where we're going to be looking here in just a minute. But I want you to think about a couple questions with me here. So I heard a guy named Sam Albury, maybe some of you have heard of that guy, um, read some of the stuff that he's written, uh, good author, good preacher. And I guess one of his friends from the UK, he's from the UK, said this, ask yourself these questions. What gets you up? What gets you down? What gets you through? Those are three good questions. What gets you up? What gets you down? What gets you through? Those questions are like x-ray questions to the soul to determine who your God is or what your idols are. You know, the competition for God in our hearts. So think through those questions for a minute. What gets you up? What gets you down? What gets you through? And then think, again, be honest with yourself. The answers that come to mind, how much of those answers has to do with fear? Perhaps especially the first two questions. What gets you up? Like, gets you going? Motivated? And what gets you down? So, <laughs> the Bible paints a different picture than being driven by fear, okay, for the Christian life. So the Christian life begins when our fears get aligned with reality, okay, capital R, reality. So this is what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. If you're a Christian, that happened to you. If you're not yet a Christian, this needs to happen, can happen for you. Like your life can come in line with reality this morning on the spot. So instead of fearing your fellow dust balls walking around that you rub shoulders with all the time, you realize that you're not here by accident. You didn't crawl, you know, our ancestors didn't crawl out of primordial soup. God created us, and we've all gone astray. We've sinned against the holy God. We have no way of atoning for our sins, even though we feel like we need to try. And maybe if we do good enough, then he'll kind of let us in. We deserve his judgment. We deserve his condemnation. We deserve his eternal rejection and punishment. That's what's truly fearful. Like it says in Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because God is a consuming holy fire and we are unholy in our sin. We are rebellious. We've all gone astray. We all want to be little gods. We want our will to be done on earth as it is in our own minds and hearts. 
But there's more reality to reality than just a just judgment from a holy God. He's also merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the testimony of the Bible from start to finish. And he demonstrated that love. He put his money where his mouth was in that while we were still hell-deserving sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So God is love. Apostle John wrote that in 1 John, that first letter that he wrote. And his love took on flesh and blood and suffered and died in our place for our sins to pay our unpayable sin debt so we could be forgiven and cleansed, our sins atoned for. We could be reconciled to God. We could be at peace with God and become his beloved sons and daughters forever. That's why we sung, we were beggars, now we're royalty. What that means is, if you are a son of God, he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus is the king of kings, Lord of lords. Like, if we're sons of and daughters of God, then that means we're in a royal family. It's crazy. So, if that's all true, that perfect love given to us through Christ, the Apostle John also right, it casts out fear. Because fear has to do with judgment. And if Jesus took our punishment on the cross, there's nothing left but love. No more punishment, right? And even the discipline, the, the training that he puts us through to strengthen our faith, it's not just like sticking it to us. It's to make us more like Jesus. So even that's love. So there's nothing left for those whose sins were paid for on the cross. If you're trusting in Jesus, then there's nothing left but love. You have nothing left to fear. So as Christians, we live by faith, not by fear. We're controlled by God's grace and his love, not by fears and threats. What do we have to fear? If God is for us, before Nehemiah, we looked at Romans 8, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? And if nothing and no one can separate you from the love of Christ, not even death, then we have nothing to fear. What can man do to me? So there's this story about a guy, early church, Father John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople. Um, he was facing persecution at the hands of Eudoxia and the Emperor Arcadius in the Byzantine Empire in the 5th century. You don't have to remember any of that. I won't tomorrow. Um, so this is probably a little bit stylized summary of what Chrysostom actually said, but it's helpful. It's true nonetheless. So Eudoxia threatened him with banishment. And he replied, You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, the empress said. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures, said Eudoxia. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot, said John, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. 
for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Or for the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. He's writing the letter to the Philippians. And they're worried about him because he's in prison. And he writes and says, hey, I'm rejoicing. I got some prison ministry going on here, so you should rejoice with me. In fact, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord always. He also writes in that letter, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How do you threaten a guy like that? So what, brother or sister, what gets you down? Sorry, what gets you up, motivated, up in the morning? What gets you down? What gets you through? Faith over fear. We sang it earlier this morning. By faith our fathers roamed the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. We will stand as children of the promise. It's like Hebrews 11 in our head, the hall of faith, you know. By faith all these people did all this stuff. It's a great cloud of witnesses and we're running the race as well. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. So don't you want to walk by faith and not by sight? Don't you want to walk by faith and not by fear? Well, let's ask God to help us do that. Like all of us, you know, Lord, help us. Like, I need help right now. Help me walk by faith and not by sight. And help me this morning. Give me grace this morning so that I can walk by faith this week. And God has given us Nehemiah to help us along these lines. All right? So let's dive in. So we've seen in previous weeks, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king in Persia. Some of the people had returned. You know, uh, sorry, go back a little bit for maybe those of you who are with us for the first time. The people of Israel had lived in the promised land, but because of their sin and rebellion, they were exiled to Babylon. And the city was, like Jerusalem, was just raised to the ground, just burned. And God promised that he would bring the people back. And King Cyrus, the Persians, beat up the Babylonians. They became the world power. And Cyrus said, okay, you guys can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And so there were waves of returnees that went back to rebuild the temple. The first wave was led by who? No. <laughs> it's okay. Zerubbabel. Yep. And then Ezra. That was wave number two. And, you know, the temple got completed, but the work got stalled. And so Nehemiah hears that things are still in ruins, and his heart breaks, and he fasts, and he prays, and he goes to the king, and he says, Would you send me back? with your blessing, and even provide resources so that I can rebuild the city. And King Artaxerxes got behind it. And so he comes back, and he meets all kinds of threats, outside, inside, everywhere. And we read of more threats here in chapter 6. So false pretense and a false prophet. First, the false pretense. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Now when Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambalot and Geshem said to me, saying, sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. So nobody knows where Hakafarim totally was with, you know, 
specificity, but the plain of Ono is clear, and it's probably halfway between Jerusalem and Samaria. Okay, right about halfway. Kind of a day's journey from the city for, for um, Nehemiah. So this is plausible, right? Place to meet. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this manner. It's kind of obvious that they're desperate. And I answered them in the same manner. I mean, like, why can't they just live and let live or live and let build? Like, what's going on? What's the motive of these surrounding enemies that keep trying to threaten Jerusalem and, keeping it from, and keep it from being rebuilt? Well, if you were some of these, you know, little kingdom, surrounding kingdom leaders, if, if the people of Israel just kind of scattered, like the city's kind of in ruins, and, and most of the folks are just peasant farmers in villages around, they're never going to coalesce and become a kingdom. They're never going to become a power. There's never going to be any competition in that area. So if it just stays that way, everything's fine. There's no critical mass to create a threat to power in that region. But if the wall's rebuilt and the city's repopulated, then they become a competing power. So they want to squash this thing and keep them down. So four times, come and meet. Because they want to do him harm. Draw him away, distract him, and then do him harm. That didn't work, so they changed tactics. Look at verse 5. In the same way, Sambalot for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, not sealed. It was, and it was written, it's a, reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. In other words, you want the city built up, you want to become king, Nehemiah, and you're going to rebel against Persia. You know, here he sends you and supports you, and then you're going to turn on him. That's a pretty effective rumor to get started if you want to threaten, you know, Nehemiah and squash the work. It's blackmail. It wasn't true, but if the Persian king believes it's true, He's going to come and hammer this thing and shut it down. So, wasn't true. Nehemiah courageously calls his bluff, ignores the threat. But, I mean, that threat had worked before. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Ezra 4, that was the, the card that was played back then. And they came to the king and said, you know the reputation of Jerusalem. They, they, they're rebellious. They're going to rebel against you. And at that point, he sent an envoy, and they shut down the work. So basically, they tried, that, tried to play that card again, but it didn't work. Nehemiah ignores the threat. So they move from more overt strategies to more covert strategies. So we go from false pretense, meetings, you know, under false pretenses, to a false prophet. Look at verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, why is that? We don't know. Ritual uncleanness. Was he disabled in some way? Or maybe this was like a symbolic act. Sometimes prophets did these symbolic acts. You know, like, just like you, Nehemiah, need to be locked up in the temple to be safe. I'm confined to my home. We, we don't know. So he's confined to his home, and he says, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. And, and you can't see it, maybe, in English, but in Hebrew, 
those last two lines, for they're coming to kill you, they're coming to kill you by night, is poetry. So it gives this air of it being like an official word from God, an oracle. Oh, the oracle has spoken. So we need to take this really seriously. The point is to threaten and intimidate Nehemiah. How does he respond? Look at verse 11. I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. So Nehemiah fears God more than real threats or perceived human threats. And actually fearing God in the right sense, you know, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is actually part of what it means to live by faith and not by fear or not by sight. So he knew, Nehemiah knew his Bible. He knew that the only people that could go into the temple were the priests, right? So he wasn't going to make the same prideful mistake that King Uzziah did like some 300 years earlier. Anybody remember this story? Second Chronicles 26. So Uzziah was king for like 50 years, you know, accomplished all this great stuff. But in verse 16, look what it says. When Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest, courageously, went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. And rather than responding in faith, he gets angry. Again, in his pride, thinks too highly of himself. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry, the priests angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. The Lord could have just killed him. Look in, in Numbers 18. To do this when you're unauthorized could be death. So listen, if Nehemiah had tried to save his life, he would have lost it. At best, it would have been cowardly. At worst, sacrilegious. Okay, so as one commentator, a guy named Charles Fincham, writes, the whole purpose of the enemies and the false prophet was to incite him to commit a ritual transgression. This would discredit him in the eyes of his own people. And then they wouldn't be led by him anymore. You see? He was a really effective leader. They couldn't threaten him. Maybe they could get him to sin, and then he'd look bad in the eyes of the people, and they wouldn't listen to him anymore. So Shemaiah had been recognized as some kind of prophet, and, and you know, he tries this covert scheme, but it became clear to Nehemiah, because Nehemiah knew his Bible, no prophet of the Lord is going to tell some non-priest to go into the temple. So he knew it was a false prophet hired by Nehemiah's enemies. This guy was like Balaam, you know, prophet for hire to the highest bidder. So the significance for us, what, what, so what? what? What does this mean? Nehemiah knew the priest could only enter the temple. He knew that because he knew the Bible. He knew God's word up until that point. So the significance for us is that God won't lead his people 
by prophetic word that is contrary to his revealed word. So if somebody comes up to you and says, the Lord told me, and if it contradicts the revealed word of God in the Bible, you know it's a false prophecy and you should disregard it, just like Nehemiah did. The word of God is the standard by which all other words are weighed. It's how Jesus battled Satan and the temptations in the wilderness, right? He knew the word and he wielded the sword of the word against the evil one. He knew the voice of God. And so the voice, the deceptive lying voice of the evil one was drowned out and resisted by the voice of God. So again, same for us. We need to know the word. We need to know the true word so that we can distinguish the counterfeits. So this covert strategy didn't work either. Nothing could divert Nehemiah from his God-ordained course. He was going to operate by faith and not out of fear. So when walking by faith involved risk and sacrifice for him or when it involves it for us, we can't allow ourselves to be tempted away to safety and security. So Jesus told us, he told his disciples, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you trust me, we walk by faith, and you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, you'll find it. This is how Jesus operated, right? There were all kinds of overt strategies to bully and intimidate him. There were covert strategies. They didn't work either. Do you remember in Luke chapter 13, the Pharisees came to him and said, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In other words, my life is in God's hands. Go tell that fox to bug off. So if Jesus had tried to save his life, he would have lost everything and saved no one. But he willingly gave his life to save us. And then he calls us to deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow Jesus. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. Your comfort, your safety, security, all of this, living selfishly. But if you lose your life, giving your life, laying it down, he's in charge, wherever he leads. If you lose your life for my sake, what gets you up for my sake and the Gospels? What gets you through for my sake and the Gospel? You will save it. You will find it. So <clears throat> no greater work to which, you know, he would have been called by the Father, and he was going to accomplish it no matter the cost. That's the case for Jesus. That was the case for Nehemiah. Remember in verse 3, he says, I'm doing a great work. I can't be drawn away. And listen, let me just, let's consider this carefully here. That also is the case for us. So our role, our work is not one-to-one -one correlation to Nehemiah, okay? Nobody's building a wall. I mean, unless you like work for a masonry company. And that's cool. You can do that to the glory of God. So 
it's different, but it's similar. And so in what ways? Well, let's just think about it this way. Okay, what was Nehemiah's secular employment? What, what was his job? Cupbearer, okay? He's a cupbearer to the most powerful man in the known world at the time. And he worked and probably lived in the palace, you know, this grand palace. He's this high-level governmental official. He had the trust and respect of the king. He left all of that for a time in order to rebuild a wall that was probably like somewhere between a mile and a half and two miles in perimeter. That's all the bigger Jerusalem was at the time. So if we split the difference between one and a half and two and a half, because we're not quite sure where the wall was, you know, excavations and all this. It's been done. Most of it's clear. They're not totally sure in some places. If we split the difference, let's go with two miles, okay, for the sake of the point. And in order to keep the math simple for the pastor that went to public school, okay, um, you're maybe looking at 160 acres. He left that job to go stack rocks around a city of 160 acres. And there were like a few thousand people living in the city at the time. Not even as many as there are in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, where I lived for a couple years. There's 5,770 5, people in Punxsutawney as of 2019. And one main street and a couple of stoplights. All right. So how in the world is that a great work? Stacking rocks around a small town in the middle of Nowheresville. Like, the folks back at the Persian palace, what are they thinking of him? Like, you're crazy. What are you doing? But it wasn't about the size of the work. It wasn't even ultimately about the wall. It was about God's name and God's glory, God's kingdom on earth. It was about the fulfillment of God's promises and purposes to his people. It was about the welfare of God's people, both now and future generations from Nehemiah's time. It was about the God who made promises to his people to dwell with him. Dwell with them, sorry. And it was about what the people of God would one day become. So listen, for us, the work now might not look like much. Like the work that you're called to do, building the kingdom, building up the church. But participating in the work now is participating in what it will one day be. We sung of, like, what's coming. The new, like, one day, Jesus is coming back and making everything new. New Jerusalem coming out of heaven. Like, everything's new. Everything is perfect and glorious. And, and actually, we have a part to play in building up the church. Jesus promised to do it. I will build my church. The gates of Hades cannot stand against it. But how does he do that? When we pull our weight we use the gifts God's given us to build up his church. And here we are in Wilmington, Newcastle County, Delaware. And it might not look all that impressive when you're changing diapers in the nursery or you're teaching your kids Bible verses or you're cutting somebody's lawn who needs a helping hand or you're bringing a meal or you're hosting a community group and stuff gets broken. And you're like, ugh. 
So the work might not look like much, but participating in the work, the building up of the church, is participating in what God is doing and what it will one day be. So the God of the work is great. His mercy and his grace and his deliverances and his promises, those are great. That's what makes the work great. That's what makes the sacrifice worthwhile. It kind of sounds like Hebrews 11. You remember Moses? What did he leave? In, in Hebrews eleven twenty four, by faith Moses, by faith, the theme through the morning, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Like, he, he had it made. But he, cho- he chose mistreatment with the people of God than, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. He walked by faith and not by sight. Now Hebrews 11 is on the heels of Hebrews 10, which is kind of the point as far as application and why Hebrews 11 is there. Hebrews 10.35 says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. You need to keep going by faith, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then, chapter 11, these guys did it, These ladies did it by faith. They made it. God was faithful. So for us, Matthew 16, 18 is the great promise, the great work that we're called to do. I will build my church and the gates of Hades. Death won't stand against it. And we, parts of the body, use our gifts, our time, our talents, our treasure, the things God has given us to Give our little contribution to the great work that God is doing in the world today and in our little world here in northern Delaware. So again, a lot of ministry can seem pretty small and insignificant, pretty tedious and repetitive, but it's not the work itself always that makes it great work. It's who you do it for. He's great. So work done in his name is a great work. It's what it's aimed at. It's what promises are driving you. What gets you up? What gets you through? Your effort, however small, contributing to the fulfillment of God's promises, that matters. And it makes your ministry valuable and significant. So what is the great work in your life? What do you view as the great work in your life? Is it what you do at your job? Now, let me be careful here. If our jobs are an end in and of themselves, then we're missing the point. And, you know, we're just kind of spinning our wheels, just trying to survive. The point is, are we seeking first the kingdom in everything that we do? Are you seeking first the kingdom in your job? Then you are living out kingdom purposes in the midst of your job? Are you seeking first the kingdom in your home and in your neighborhood and through the life of the church? So, of course, our jobs, like your jobs, are valuable and important. We have a class right now going on, created. Oh, my goodness. What's the title again? Created for craftsmanship. Craftsmanship, okay? Because our work matters, and we need to integrate faith and work. So it's not like I'm trying to say, you know, people who do ministry full-time, like a pastor or a missionary, that's like, you know, 
important work. And then doing your job, that's kind of like second-class citizenry. No, 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 no. Not at all. But isn't it easy to get so focused on your work that that's really what you're living for? And you're not seeking first the kingdom in and through your work and in all aspects of life. So that's what I'm talking about. So you can see, just like with Nehemiah, the evil one, your enemy, wants to distract you from the work, the great work. And he'll try all kinds of strategies and schemes to cause you to walk by fear and not by faith. So let's be alert. The devil is prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. Let's resist him firm in the faith, walking by faith and not by fear. I told you the first point was the longest one. Okay. So the enemies of God with Nehemiah sought to distract him, discredit him, but he was walking by faith and not by fear, and those strategies ultimately backfired on them. So point number two, backfiring. Look at verses 15 and 16, chapter 6. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days, and when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid. They were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So do you see how it backfired? What, was the, what were the enemies trying to do? They were trying to cause Nehemiah to fear and give, it, give up the work. They were trying to cause the people of God to fear. But in the end, God helping them, the wall was built in 52 days, which was a remarkable feat. And who ended up afraid? The neighbors, the enemies. So here's the cool thing. I hadn't seen this until studying this section this past week. Derek Kidner points it out. I think it's up there. So the very size of the circle which Sambalot had managed to draw around Jerusalem brought all the wider recognition of God's power. Okay, we'll skip that first, or the Philippians 1 thing. So think about it. He tried to get other people on board to bully and intimidate and threaten and oppress Nehemiah and the work in Jerusalem. He widened the circle. It wasn't just him picking on Nehemiah. It's a bunch of people picking on Nehemiah. So he thought, if I get more people involved, the pressure will be be greater and he'll fold. But it backfired. So guess what happened? More people were impressed that God was at work. More people were afraid, like, whoa, their God is at work. God got more glory. His name was spread wider. Do you see how it backfired? So what they intended for evil, God intended for good. What Satan and the enemies intended with this open letter, put more pressure, oh no, actually, more people are going to see who the real God is. This is like how God works. Remember the thorn in the flesh for Paul, 2 Corinthians 12? What did Satan intend there? To tear Paul down, to harass him. What did God intend? To humble him, to help him. How about this? Do you think Satan has anything intended in this pandemic? Do you think God has anything intended in this pandemic? Maybe we should pay attention to that rather than fighting over a bunch of opinions. We, I think that's still relevant, you know? So the fact that Sambalot sent his threat as an open letter involving more people 
meant that more people knew that Yahweh was at work. So, so cool how God turned it for good. It backfired. So do you think it's important for us to know, if we're going to walk by faith and not by fear, do you think it's important for us to know that the strategies of the enemies of God and the enemy of God will ultimately backfire? That's encouraging to know. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that because we might feel like they're winning. Exhibit A is the cross. It looks like weakness and defeat. But oh no, actually, King Jesus is coronated on the cross. It is finished. He's beginning to reign from the cross as the King of kings and Lord of lords of his eternal kingdom. So seeing the strategies of the enemies of God, seeing them backfire, we're not always going to see that in this life. In fact, a lot of that stuff we won't see until the end when Everything is, all the accounts are settled. But we can trust God to deal justly with our enemies. That's exactly what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah 6.14, Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. God will settle accounts. No one's getting away with anything in this universe, ultimately. That's either a comfort, if you're trusting Jesus, or that is a threat which should lead you to Jesus. (laughs) So, Nehemiah faced the overt external threats. He faced the covert threats where Shemaiah hid his intentions behind false spiritual pretense. Um, But unfortunately, that wasn't all Nehemiah had to deal with. Maybe worst of all, he faced pressure from his own people. Look at verse 17. Moreover, in these days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. So this is like insiders giving information to the enemies. Like, the intel going out. Like, what, what is going on here? For many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehonanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakai, as his wife. And also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So since distraction and threats didn't didn't work, didn't stop the building, completion of the wall, they took a different tack to see if internal buttering up would work. It's like pragmatic diplomacy. So just in the interest of time here, let me just uh, read a, a commentary quote from Kidner, Derek Kidner. He summarizes what's going on well here. So you can follow along on the screens. These three verses reveal a still more serious threat in the disloyalties that might have sabotaged the whole enterprise and which would persist to the end of Nehemiah's story. Unfortunately, he had to deal with them beyond this. The evil, like the other, found its foothold in the more prosperous levels of society, this time through the love of power and status. Tobiah was a more insidious influence in this respect than Sambalot, since Tobiah was probably a fellow Jew in addition to being a nominal adherent of Yahweh. His name is Jewish, and his son's name as well. So while such links and loyalties were embarrassing enough in themselves, we now learn how busily they were exploited by intrigues, persuasive talk, leaks of information, and threatening letters. All this, in addition to the outside pressures already described, brought Nehemiah under attack from almost every quarter. It had been a test worthy of the man, and it was not yet over. Sounds like Paul. It's like nothing new under the sun. Sounds like Paul in his ministry, when he lists out all the ways in which he'd been afflicted and suffered in 2 Corinthians 11 
as he's trying to spread the gospel far and wide in Asia Minor, he writes this in 1126, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. So the threats come from the outside, they come from the inside, and again, it serves as a warning for us. There's always going to be an angle of pressure to cave or compromise or play to the crowd or play to the power players. We must buy, walk by faith and not by fear. And then final point, chapter 7. So can I have a volunteer to read um, Nehemiah 7? Don't worry, it's only like 73 verses, and there's like a thousand names that you can barely pronounce. Nobody? Okay, no, seriously, we're not going to read the whole chapter. Um, I'm going to read the first six verses and then just try to see what's going on. Like, what's the point of this chapter? Because we might be tempted to just pass right by it because it's just a genealogy. What's the point of that? So look at 7.1. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. So in other words, because the city was so small, so few people inside, the threats were outside, let's open late and close early for the sake of the security of the city. Verse 4, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles from whom, or exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. So verse 6, through the end of Nehemiah 7, except for the last phrase of chapter 7, is Ezra 2, copied in. Why did Nehemiah do that? Why, why does it just get copied in right here? Well, for Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the wall was never the end game. It was a necessary precursor to the real work of rebuilding the people, the city, the place of God's special dwelling. So there may be multiple reasons. We could maybe talk about other considerations, but perhaps the most significant reason for this chapter being included in this big old genealogy of names we can hardly pronounce, perhaps the most significant reason is now that the wall was rebuilt, if the city is going to be really rebuilt to the point of flourishing, people are going to need to move in. The problem is the houses are in ruins right? No houses had been rebuilt. Who's going to move in? So to do so would mean leaving their established lives and probably nice homes. Have you read the book of Haggai where it talks about the people focusing on their paneled houses and neglecting the temple? They're going to have to leave their established lives and nearly start over. Like, that's costly. That's a sacrifice. Who would want to do that? How do you rally people to do that, to take that costly step? 
walking by faith and not by fear. Well, Nehemiah takes Ezra 2 and plops it in right here. If the people that he was talking to and leading and addressing think that this sacrifice is too much, what about the exiles who returned? That's what that list is from. Moving almost a thousand miles from Persia to Jerusalem, away from their established lives. They truly left everything and started over. Way more risk, much greater cost in that return. But they did it. So those were your faithful forefathers and foremothers who sacrificed for the sake of the kingdom. Will you walk by faith and not by fear? That's what Nehemiah is doing as the leader. So what is this chapter here for? What's the point of chapter 7? The point is the whole enterprise has never been about bricks and mortar. It's about God's kingdom being built. God's people, how how do you define the kingdom of God? God's people in God's place under God's benevolent rule for God's glory. That's the kingdom. And that's the same for us. So are we seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Worrying about and seeking first, like concerned about seeking first what's first on God's mind. You know, the people in the world are always worried about what they're going to eat and drink and what they're going to wear. But they don't know God. They don't know they have a heavenly father that can take care of all of that. You know, Matthew 6, what Jesus said. Yes, of course, we need food and drink and clothes. There's lots of things God gives us to enjoy in this life, but we were made and saved and called to a greater work. So one little application, given our emphasis on adoption this month, think about this. Maybe God is going to call you to adopt one of those two kids that were on the screen or, or one of the other kids that's in the email that we sent out with all the kids we're praying for this month that need to be adopted in the state right now. Can you imagine how you might shrink back from that? Like, oh, that would be really costly, my comfortable life. But if God is calling you to that great work for the sake of the kingdom, then walk by faith and not by fear. We're saved to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. We're saved to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that it's not in vain. Again, regardless of what your job is, we're all in full-time ministry. Jesus promised to build his church, and he plans to do it through us, through our small, faithful contributions and effort. That's the great work that we've been called to. So Jesus is saying to us, let me and my glory and my purposes and my love be what gets you up in the morning. Let me, let my heart, the things that grieve my heart, be the things that get you down. And let me, your Savior, shepherd, lover, friend, get you through. Let's walk by faith and not by fear. It will be hard. There will be many threats and pressures from the outside and from within. But know this, I will walk with you. My faithfulness will sustain your faithfulness. That's what Jesus is saying to us. This we can call to mind. Therefore, we have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. When the threats and the trials come, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So let's pray, and then we're going to respond in faith 
by singing the song when trials come. So if the worship team wants to come up, um, I'm going to pray briefly here. We'll sing that song and be done.